Hello and welcome to Finally Friday. This chat session is run by EXARC, the Society for Archaeological Open Air Museums, Experimental Archaeology, Ancient Technology and Interpretation. My name is Matilda Siebrecht and today I am joined by two specialists from our EXARC community focusing on public outreach and communication at open air museums. Dr. Zsolt Shari is the Deputy Director at Schranzen, the Hungarian Open Air Museum, which is a predominantly ethnographic museum focusing on life in the 19th and 20th centuries. His work revolves around the communication of traditional Hungarian culture, focusing on the social responsibility of museums to engage with past cultural traumas and modern world issues. Luke Winter is the founder of Historic Concepts Limited, which focuses on the construction of historic and prehistoric buildings for open air museums and heritage centers. As well as the more practical aspects of his work, he is also specialized in education, focusing on the communication of archaeological and traditional knowledge through hands-on volunteer programs and demonstrations. So welcome to uh, Jolt and Luke. So I have a quick question to start you off. Both of you are very involved with the communication of archaeological, ethnographic, historical knowledge, so heritage knowledge, shall we say. Why do you think it is so important that people in the modern world learn about their past? Perhaps, Luke, you might start? Yeah, so this is a sort of common theme in, in archaeology and the kind of work that I do, and it's a really critical one. I suppose essentially that the question is, why do we do what we do? For me, there are some sort of crucial points about the importance of people learning about their past. We now live in a very modern world with lots of technology, and we are, without realising it, I think, we're sort of losing touch with who we are as human beings and where we've come from. And we're losing touch, I think, really importantly, with what it takes to achieve basic things. So it's very easy to go onto YouTube, for example, and watch a film of somebody building a timber frame in two and a half minutes, or somebody casting a bronze axe in two and a half minutes, or somebody making a beautiful dye colour in two and a half minutes. And everything is very polished and sped up. But we're really missing and forgetting those incredible processes of thought and practical knowledge and skills which are required to achieve things. The point of sort of transferring our distant past to modern humans is to really put them back in touch with what it is to be a human in a world which we affect and the sheer hard work and sweat that is required to achieve things. Nothing is actually ever achieved by the press of a button. That The work that goes in behind it is epic, but we tend to, in the modern world, really hide those things. So for me, it's really important to sort of bring those to the fore and really show the sheer hard work and commitment and sacrifice of our ancestors to get us to where we are now. Okay, thank you. So talking about basically trying to reconnect with our past in that respect. Joel, do you have anything that you would like to add from your experience? I think Luke is absolutely true. About the Open Air Museum, I think one of the best examples in the museum's world, because even at the time when Open Air Museums were being formed, they did not only take responsibility for safeguarding and presenting the build and the object heritage, the natural heritage, but the intangible cultural heritage was also the subject of the museum research. And now, in my mind, the museum is an agora. And the agora aspect of Open Air Museums emerged quite early. They took on the role of forming local, personal, and the national identity with their exhibitions. They often otherwise typical conflicts between the classes of society as they developed into a kind of museum where 
members of society with different backgrounds could discover their own cultural characteristics. So that is, in one hand, identity and own self-building with the museums. On the other hand, we can present good examples and practice in the modern world. What does it mean, biodiversity? What does it mean, live close to the nature? And of course, I know this tunes, uh, what the museums means, because sometimes and mostly the museum uh, present the past, uh, but present for the nowadays. And I hope uh, not just for the nowadays, but for the next generation, mm-hmm. for the future also. So I like this tunes is because we collect the material of the past and the present also focus for the future and we have a big challenge and big possibility with the local communities to give a lot of answer for the question of the society. So you mentioned talking about how important it is for the future that we learn about our past. I know especially, Luke, you mentioned that before you have worked a lot with sort of children, education of children and the younger generations in this respect. So for both of you, do you think that there's a difference in how we project the past to children or to the younger generations as opposed to older individuals, for example. I find this really interesting. I've worked with many, many thousands of children over the years and many, many thousands of adults in very similar roles. So I've done projects where children have felled trees with flint axes and adults have done the same and we've built enormous structures. But what I've found, and feel free to disagree with me, is that I don't tend to approach those two different age groups differently in any way when it comes to education. I think in the line of work that I do, the key is to kind of really get them involved. I always use correct terminology. I never dumb down regardless of age. And I think it's really important that we don't with children. Personally, I think, you know, children are incredible things. I've always said if you had 10,000 seven-year-olds, you could sort of conquer the world, which is probably inappropriate. But actually, they're entirely uh, vibrant. They can absorb information in, in a huge way. I might be talking to a group of retired individuals or a group of seven-year-olds about humanity and our earliest existence, and I really don't change what I say between the two groups. And I think so far in my 25 years of doing this that both groups get an equal amount from it. I think the biggest issue is the context of what you're saying. So the biggest issue in our field, full stop, is deep time and a comprehension of that. But to be honest, if you're talking about 20,000 years ago to a seven-year-old or to a 70-year-old, both of those individuals will have the same difficulty in comprehending what that is and what that means and, and how long that is and what humans have done in that time. So no, I mean, in short, I very rarely, if, if ever, change the way I approach those two groups. Would you agree with that, Schult? Yeah, it's really interesting. Sometimes the museums present different methodology and different possibilities for the different generations. And when we meet with the young generation, with the cool groups, sometimes I understand how difficult the visuality with this generation, they need high qualities visuality in the museums. They use different tools gadgets in the everyday life and it's uh, we need uh, to, to make a compromise between the old technique old technology and the modern technology and some of our educational program we use modern tools digital tools but the youngs like if they use how say it's a 
not just the multimedia, not just the, the modern tools, but the historical also. And uh, we focused on the last few years for the intergeneration education. It means the different generation use the museum together, sometimes uh, with the family also, but sometimes uh, we manage the program for the different generations together. We invite for the same program school groups and people from the elderly house also. And there is fantastic because in some conservation, the young generation looks like as a teachers teach, for example, how to use the iPad, how to take photographs with a mobile phone. And old people tell about how was it just after the war, how manage the conflict between the different minorities group. And there is a good possibility to involve the different generation in the museum. And, and I believe... Uh, as I told earlier, the museum as an agora has a possibility to, to give possibility to meet the different generation. And I think it's really important for us to collect the communities in the museum. And on the other hand, our educational program is not a formal educational program. We like an informal educational program. And the museum don't give just the answer for the youngs, but we give more and more question and the discussion is really important in the work with the youngs and the school groups also. Do you have anything to add to that, Luke? Any further thoughts? Yeah, I think it's interesting. This is why discussions are so good. I think we're coming at it from quite different perspectives. My background involved the management of an open-air museum for 15 years, the Ancient Technology Centre. And I suppose the sort of point of what we did at that particular site was, for example, there was no sort of paper or pens allowed on site. It was purely about experience and about what you did with your hands and with your brain. But I totally take the point that younger people access the past in a very different way to older people in terms of technology and sort of immediate access with phones and iPads and things. From my experience, I think regardless of that sort of modern technology, it's almost an imposition because fundamentally, I believe that although technology is a wonderful thing and can enable us to access amazing things, it also inherently removes us from real life. It segregates us from those real experiences such as touch and smell and doing and sweating. Um, sweat is common in my uh, line of work. So coming back to what I was saying about children and, and older people, even if, if I take a seven-year-old child who has only ever really interacted with modern technology, when they have the chance to do something very practical and physical with their bodies and hands concerning the past, they very quickly sort of realign themselves with what we are as humans, which is people that do things as opposed to pressing things or swiping things. So yes, I totally take the point that, that different age groups might have different perspectives on what they learnt when they were children and how they learnt it. But for me, I would happily march down the streets with banners saying that in a way technology should be I'm being flippant here. I think what I truly believe is probably that technology should be uh, controlled. This is this is the wrong word, but it should be limited, especially in our younger people, because it really removes them from the real acts of engaging with the world, which I think is a real mistake. Do you have a response for that, Chad? I think the, the modern technology is absolutely just a tool 
for the rich museum goes. But I think the most difficult things with the young generation to reach the museum, if we involve the youngs in the museum, we can be successful. But the most difficult, how can we invite the youngs? Of course, not with the school groups, because the school groups are arriving to the museum. But how can we invite the secondary schools young uh, to the museum uh, alone with the, their friends or with their families? And the most difficult work in the museum to communicate with this generation, to invite to the museum. Because in the museum, I think my colleagues find a lot of solutions to involve the people with the good programs. And in the museum, they are realized, oh, the museum is sometimes sexy and not a boring institution. That is my focus point in the museum, to, to think the young generation, the museum is sexy, really sexy. We would like to make something there. The museum is absolutely open place where we can discussion, when, where we have a good time, eat, good eating, a good program. We meet together with uh, our friends. So it's a really hard work, yeah. <laughs> Moving on from that a little bit. So because, of course, museums, especially open-air museums, are very permanent. Uh, well, permanent, I mean, they can't usually travel as easily because they're made of buildings or historic monuments or something like that. So as you were saying, visitors have to come to you. So you have to encourage visitors to come. Do you think that there is a greater interest from local visitors? Obviously, at the moment with coronavirus, people are traveling less, so it's more from local. But in general, do you find there is a greater interest from local visitors? Or is the museum equally relatable for people who have traveled there from abroad, for example? Perhaps, Luke, uh, you could start? My personal experience with the Ancient Technology Center was that majority of our visitors were more local. So probably within two, three hours drive of the centre itself. But we did have visitors from much further afield as well. And I think in terms of the importance of that, I think if any of us go on holidays, we do. And we tend to seek out museums and explore those sort of past ways of life simply because in general, it tends to be quite different to the culture that we're familiar with. And this is one of the, the crucial roles, I think, of museums like ours, is that you are showing in a sort of physical and practical way the, the, the origins of the culture that you see before you now. And I think in terms of sort of expressing to other cultures how our culture has begun and how it's transformed over time i think it's nothing but relevant in the modern world in any world really and you know when you look around the modern world and the issues that we've had in the last well the last many millennia actually in terms of cultural conflict and cultural segregation i think it can only be good to show not only the differences in cultures but of course what underlie those differences are the commonalities of humanity so you know again what we are as humans where we've come from the the struggle that we've had for the last two and a half million years and i think it's a very powerful tool to be able to show local people who think they know where they come from and people from further afield who think they know where they come from that actually we all have very common roots regardless of what we've now become in terms of segregation and in terms of cultural differences we are all human and we should respect each other as that and i think that's absolutely critical in, in what we do would you agree uh, schultz in my museum 60 percent of the visitors are local and 40 percent come from abroad. 
And these two groups see to the museum uh, in a different way, I think. Uh, we defined the museum as a community museum. And for the tourist people, the museum is a touristic attraction. But for the local people, we would like to be a community museum. And most of the local people come to the museum not just one time in a year, but more time. And I think we need to to be the community place and community museum. The question always arises how the community can be integrated into the life of the museum, how they can become participants when uh, they were just passive onlookers in the past. And uh, we need good uh, common communication with these groups. And if we speak about the museum as a permanent institution, which should stay in the same place, how can we reach the people who has not possible to come to the museum. We have two interesting uh, outreach programs. The first is a suitcase museum program. It means our education department travel a lot in the countries to visit uh, schools are from the museum. And uh, sometimes this region in the country are the most poor, uh, really poor region. And sometimes they are not possibility to visit the museum. And there are the one possibility to reach the museums and the knowledge of the museum. And the other program, it was started in uh, 2017, the year when was the 15th anniversary of the museum. And the Jubilee programs included an uh, interesting uh, feature, traveling exhibition. This mini traveling exhibition actually means that we go around the country in a converted and uh, renovated uh, mini one, minibus. And we stop at the settlements where our translocated buildings come from. And the museum returns the communities what we earlier received from them in a symbolic digitalized form. Architecture surveys, photos, objects, photos, and ethnographic collections. And that was a real point when we meet again with the communities, the different communities. And we rebuild again the bridge between the museum as a national museum and the different local communities over the countries. Wow, yeah, they sound like some great initiatives. I suppose also there's a bit of a different in approach, perhaps, because you're both involved with different time periods. So the Hungarian Open Air Museum is more an ethnographic museum than necessarily archaeological, whereas Historic Concepts and the Ancient Technology Center was more involved with, like you said, the sort of deeper time of human history. Uh, Luke, do you think that that affects how much you can engage with the public in that respect? Yeah, I think it definitely raises issues. I mean, one of the sort of biggest issues in my line of work in the last years has been evidence. So the issue we always face is a lack of evidence. So regardless of what experiment you're running or what you're reconstructing or what you're teaching people, you're always starting from a standpoint of at maximum 5% evidence surviving. So this immediately throws lots of spanners into the works and, and you have to really sort of work around that issue. Um, I never try and hide that issue from my volunteers and from the projects and the, the people that I teach. And in fact, that's a really important part of what I do is to try and engage people with the questions that surround archaeology and how you can attempt to navigate those issues. Ethnography is something that I've obviously drawn on in the past. And of course, what that supplies you with is evidence that, that we no longer have in archaeology. So you can understand some of the finer cultural details 
that sort of are imbued in an object, for example, or a structure, and you have hard evidence for it. Although, of course, it's never quite that simple because there are many different opinions and many different sort of investments and emotional investments in a, in a single object from individuals. But certainly in terms of the work that I do, it's a really tricky balance between navigating using as much evidence as you can find to its best effect But at the end of the day, you then have to draw upon what I think is, again, common sort of human experience and common human knowledge, looking at far more recent but historical traditions of working materials and processing materials and gathering materials to kind of end up with a finished picture. Obviously, the issues that that surround that are we could spend six months building an incredible structure and at the end... We make it really clear to the public that then visit and the groups that have been involved that these are the bits that we are confident about. We know we know where the posts were placed. We know that there's evidence for this kind of cordage and that type of knot and that kind of joint. But really obvious things like the height of a roof or the pitch of a roof or the soft furnishings that might have gone inside the building are still really up in the air. And so ethnography gives you that other dimension to be able to say, but we can say that cultures living elsewhere using a similar set of materials in a similar climate have this in their buildings. We don't know that that would have been the case in the archaeological record, but you can sort of try and bulk out what is missing in the record because the risk is that if you don't do that, you then present the past to those people that you're trying to engage with it as a very dry and very Spartan world. And of course it wasn't, because if we only used the 5% evidence that we had for a roundhouse, for example, you would then present the public with a really basic structure without much decoration, without much sort of fine carpentry. And I think that's a lie. I think that's misinterpreting the past. When you look at any other culture around the world that lives in traditional ways, their worlds are full of colour and design and music and storytelling and all the things that we cannot find in the archaeological record. So for me, it's really essential that we sort of combine those two things. I, I understand, as everyone else listening to this will do as well, that the issues with using ethnography in archaeology, and you can't simply state that, you know, because it happened over here, a hundred years ago, that means that it happened over there five thousand years ago. It's really not that simple, but I do think it's important to attempt to blend the two things. Balancing the amount of evidence that you have and how, sort of how authentic you can be to what we know was there, with kind of engaging visitors and suggesting, shall we say? I mean, suggesting is a very creative word, but uh, other situations or how it could have been uh, in that respect. Do you think, uh, Jolt, you you experience a similar issues in terms of kind of the balance between, shall we say, authenticity or or the presentation of just bare facts with kind of engaging exhibitions? In the last few years or 20 years, many things are changed. Now, when the museum was opened uh, in the 60s and after in the 70s, most of the visitors thought about the museum as a real part of their history, their memory. Because the buildings, the furnitures, situation was uh, friendly and ignored. But now, the, the young generations, the whole museum are some pages from the historical books. And we need to give some examples to understand what does it mean, the furniture culture, the buildings, and um, never forget some old people 
walk around the museum and speak about, do you remember our grandfather's house? It was absolutely similar like that. But the young generation know nothing about it because the 60s was the time in Hungary when changed everything in the countryside. That was the time uh, after the modernization in uh, the communist period when uh, the old uh, uh, houses uh, were destroyed and uh, built a new one and uh, the old furniture changed for a new one. And the Open Air Museum, as a museum institute, present the exhibition uh, the peasant life was so nice. Sometimes I think uh, our presentation via the house is the colorful uh, pink uh, rose tinted glasses. Everything are really cleaned. Everything are very nice. These people always just singing, dancing, and uh, enjoy the life. And we don't speak about the backside. How was the Higini? How was the children work? How was the 16 hours hard work on a field. And uh, the museum communication, the museum interpretation changed the last few years. That is one hand. And the other hand, understanding and uh, experiencing the historical events is assisted by the Citional Museum Education Session of a private history series in a different uh, part of the museum. Uh, we try to reconstruct the life story of the individuals or families the basis of original documents, locations, and situations, together with the students uh, by counting on their creativity and uh, empathy. And there is a real good job because I think the museum needs to stay really authentic institutions. And uh, the people or society believe the museum. And that is really important for us. Yeah, I think that's a good point. So showing not just the, like you say, the rose-tinted part of history, but the kind of what really happened. So the bad side as well as the good in that case. Would you have anything to add on that part, Luke? Yes, I think this is something I've experienced many times, actually. And it's really interesting. I've witnessed on many occasions people walking into an incredible Viking longhouse or an Iron Age roundhouse or a Neolithic longhouse. And People that weren't involved in its construction will walk into a space like that and look around and go, wow, I can really feel the vibe of this building, the sort of the emotional impact. But it comes from a perspective of almost as if the building grew from the earth with no effort involved and it's sort of almost presented from the gods and whenever I've heard this whenever I've been present I've sort of sidled up to some people and said it's really interesting that you get that sort of emotional experience from it but for me what I remember is the sweat and the occasional blood and the relationships that built this structure because it doesn't just spring from the earth it's actually a huge amount of hard work again that's the 15 hours in the field every day and I think it's really easy for people to view the past as a, a sort of utopia of well you know people yes the, the crops somehow grew we drank a lot of cider and we sat in sunny fields with fluffy bunnies but of course the story of human history is of course nothing but sheer hard work for 99.9 percent .9 of the time so yes i've definitely experienced that that sort of perspective of wow isn't it beautiful which it is and isn't it wonderful which it is but and again this is why i do what i do is because when people are physically involved in those projects they can stand back at the end and say, wow, but they will always remember 
the hard work, the sweat, the incredible ingenuity that's required, the knowledge of materials and skills. But as important as all of those things, every building that I've ever constructed and designed, when I look at it now, I remember the people involved. And so a building is almost a testament to the team and to those incredible individuals that gave up a lot of their time and learned a huge amount for many months, sometimes years, to enable that building to happen. And it's, it's a very different perspective. It's, it's a perspective you only get when you've done it. You can't get that from a screen. Do you have any final words to add to that, Jolt? I think uh, no matter how much we wish it was, the future will not be like the present. And, and the museum needs to, to give a more quickly answer as in the past, because uh, I, I think this year, this pandemic uh, period was a good example how quick react the museum for the situation to make a lot of online programs, uh, online materials for education, virtual exhibition as well. So the museum needs to live together with the society and react quickly and point. And for me and for my colleagues, uh, it is a big challenge to change in the mind and think about, yes, we have some uh, really good answer for the questions and we would like to share it with the audience. I think that's a good stage for a final question. What are your plans for the future, either in terms of yourself, your work, the museum, and how can the XR community who are listening in today help to make a difference, do you think, in regards to the points that we have discussed today? So maybe Luke first. I think the future is a really interesting question. And, and I know I've probably sort of banged on about my objection to technology. Of course, I live and use technology every day of my life, as does my family and, and everyone that I know. So I'm not against it per se. I just feel that the seesaw has swung too far in one direction. That doesn't mean I can change it either. And, and I know where the future is heading. But I think it's been really interesting with, with the pandemic, which we're all sort of struggling through at the moment, is that for the first sort of two or three weeks of the first lockdown in, in the UK, I think everyone was amazed and they looked at skies that weren't full of aeroplanes and they heard birds singing in their garden for the first time in years and the streets were clear of cars and their children could play um, without danger. And it, it was a real sort of eye-opener, I think, in terms of what we've become in the last sort of century or two, in terms of this sort of incessant drive to own more and to have more as opposed to to experience more and to, to really sort of value the world we live in. So, I mean, in terms of future, it's interesting. I'm getting more interest in terms of projects, which are sort of focusing on, for example, education spaces for outside. So I think obviously people are seeing the potential for a much higher degree of teaching and learning outside the classroom and away from indoor spaces. Obviously, that's pandemic related. And it'll be really interesting to see what happens in the next sort of three or four years. But at the moment, it's sort of looking quite hopeful in terms of projects that really shift people to the outside, to understanding their environment and to sort of using materials and, you know, Yes. Yeah, so, so, you know, essentially looking into the future, I think all of us probably as a community, we need to consider really seriously, yes, how, how we can engage people possibly outside our current understanding. So, yes, you know, we, we currently understand 
education in terms of going to museums or visiting historic sites. But I think things like the pandemic have really made us have to think, which is a good thing, about how that happens. And and yes, I can see a lot more sort of interactive online uh, resources happening. But I, I would like to think that that will come hand in hand with a lot more outside learning and real learning within our local environments. Okay, thank you for that. So, uh, Jolt, do you have any ideas for sort of plans for the future, either in the museum or your own work, and how people like the XR community can help to make a difference in regards to, to all the things that we've discussed today? For our museum, is not ac- acceptable if a great number of people in our country or in our local community are not in touch at all with our museums. So our aim is that everyone or the different communities regard the museum as one of their own. To achieve this, uh, it is necessary for the museum to embrace some elements or memories of their history. By this, the museum can become relevant for everyone. And whatever the individual finds interesting in the museum, it will contribute to their identity. Uh, this approach requires to do a lot of work together with the communities. One of the most important issues is that, for example, the, um, the ethnic minorities are to be represented in the collection of the museum so that they can meet their own past memories and stories in the museum. So we need to collect the heritage of these communities to discuss together with these communities and to find a different platform to meet with their uh, communities uh, in the real and uh, in the virtual as well. And uh, for the network of the museums and, uh, and heritage uh, institutions, I think the really important to uh, build a network, to discuss together, find uh, a possibility to work together uh, and, and change uh, the experience uh, because sometimes uh, we are in the uh, same stage and uh, we have the same problems uh, also. Okay, thank you. So, yes, yeah, similar ideas in terms of so uh, engaging more with our humanity, with our history, with our past, with our heritage, but also engaging more with others within our community, which I think is an important message today. And I see that we already have a couple of questions. First one is from Roland. In how far can we share authority of what a museum presents to the public? Can the public help in designing an exhibition or decide what building is reconstructed? So what's the limit of the involvement of any public? Who is the owner of a museum, shall we say? Uh, Perhaps, Schultz, you can start. I think it's a great question because not easy for the museum to give answer because where is the limit of our authority? But I absolutely believe the participating museum And I think we can find the solution to involve the communities in the museum's work. For example, in the past, sometimes I feel the museum was like the theater. The curators and the exhibition are on the stage and the visitors are just sitting and open their eyes and uh, look at what we say. And sometimes I think we need to give more and more questions and involve the visitors from many museums' work. Of course, we need to realize what is the scientific aspect, what is the curatorial aspect, and we need to learn the visitors to all aspects. I had a really interesting experience when I made an exhibition for a young people. And first I wrote the scenario and uh, the text of the exhibition. And I asked my colleagues to invite some young people from the school. And uh, we had a really good workshop 
about my text. And uh, first I asked the youngs, please underline the words what you don't understand in my text. And when I gave back the papers, I realized the red forest because uh, lots of words was underlined in the red. And after we started to discuss about the text and what does it mean, what is the message of the exhibition, and the final text was edited by the school groups and me together. And it was my first example how can I involve not just the young, but the communities to my work. So I absolutely believe the conversation and uh, the participating in the museum life. Okay, that's a really interesting example. Um, Luke, do you have anything to add? Yes, so it's interesting. I've been sort of trying this for a number of years. I think it's difficult for people when they see buildings, the kind of things that I do, large buildings being reconstructed. I think the assumption from most people is that I sit in a room and I work through archaeological evidence and I come up with drawn concepts and then I tell people what we're building and that's what happens. But actually, it's quite a different interaction because what I try and do is, with the teams I work with, is I try and give them as much information as I have on that project or that time period or the evidence that we're following. And what actually ends up happening is that the building, although I start with an idea of how it can work structurally so it won't fall down, the building inevitably morphs through the direct input of those people that are helping to build it. For example, on a project I ran last year at Beeston Castle, we built a Bronze Age roundhouse. And one of the volunteers who was really into it, getting really into the sort of the deeper questions of how you interpret the evidence, he said to me one day, why do the walls stop there? Why can't there be an extra space where we would consider the eaves to be, for example? And I said to him, you know what, that's a really good idea. I never would have thought of that because I've been trapped within my own sort of circle of thinking. And so we had materials and I said to him, try it, do it. And he and a team went off and they thought about it and they tried a section of sort of enlarging the roundhouse beyond its natural boundaries. And it worked really well. And I learned a huge amount from it. They learned a huge amount from it. So it was a genuine exchange of ideas and input from what we would consider to be amateurs. And, you know, that's in inverted commas. Because, of course, everyone has opinions. If you can inform people to a high degree with the evidence that's out there, everyone will have different opinions as to what that evidence means. And I think it's really important in terms of not presenting a finished version of the past. That is not what we're here to do. We are here to help people to think about the past and everyone will have a different opinion and a different perspective on the same set of evidence. And I think it's really important to recognise that and to welcome those ideas. Okay, thank you. And actually, we have a bit of a further comment from Roland about the sort of concept of ownership, because I guess what you're saying as well, Luke, is that if people have built it themselves and know the information themselves, they almost feel like they have an ownership of it as well, I suppose. Roland's mentioning, I know several museums where local people would take their foreign visitors to that open air museum, proudly showing them their museum and their story. So the local population is a good fan base, which also, I guess, uh, Jolt, that's very, very much the case with your museum, I can imagine. Yeah, it's really interesting because we are a national museum and it's a great question. How can we involve the different local communities? Many people meet their knowledge, their identity, their past in the museum. So it's easy to open for this society. But the next years, we need to give more aspects for the minorities group, for the different minorities group, because 
sometimes they're missing the museum and we need to collect from their identity, from their history, items, documents, photographs to the museum, because if they meet identity, their history in the museum, they will have a more close connection to the museum. And uh, I think many local communities together give or power. I never forget many years ago in Holland, an open museum was just on the door of closed and the director gave a many interview if you feel this museum is important for you, please, on the next Saturday, come to the museum. And thousands and thousands of people went to the museum. And that was the message for the politicians. The local community needs for this museum. And their museum was not closed. They are lived now and very prospect museum. So I think there is a other point when the politicians understand communities need the museum and they are background of the museum. That's a lovely memory to have showing the importance of these things. And this sort of relates a bit to the idea of basically how can open-air museums or museums react to all of the restrictions and the problems that have been associated with the current global pandemic. So you both mentioned some plans for the future in that respect. But for example, Sander Salmina says, I like the thought that Museums, especially open-air museums, are the place where you can show real life, real actions. So this authenticity you were talking about before, and this is the kind of experience that is needed in museums. But how can we continue to do that in these days when we have to stay distance, we can't meet? Do you have any thoughts about how not to lose this quality? I know, Luke, you mentioned already doing more outdoor activities. Do you have anything further to add to that? It is such a tricky situation we're in at the moment. I think we're all finding our feet. My intention in the last couple of months was to literally sit down for a week and think about the direction of, of my company and where I'm heading in the future. Because a lot of things have changed and I think it's really made us have to think in a serious way about what we do and how we can still deliver the things that we want to deliver to the public. So, no, I mean, to be honest, at the moment, I'm still thinking in terms of outreach. I'm in a very different position from running a, an open air museum. And I realize having done that, that it's a very different sort of perspective and a very different set of goals. But certainly from my project based work, I intend to do more projects with a wider range of people looking at a sort of much broader base of evidence and experience. I'm really sort of beginning to finally, after too many years, realize that people's experiences, which are very difficult to record and sort of record archaeologically, are as important as the hard evidence that we use. And I want to pursue that in some way. Having done lots of large-scale projects and recorded them in detail, it's easy to focus on sort of the tight detail of what things mean and how you construct them and how you build them. But actually what I've been missing, although people have been shouting it at me for many years, is that personal experience. And yes, at the moment, I'm thinking more work outside larger spaces, more people can see it and engage in it without being confined indoors. Do you have any ideas for yourself there, Schultz? I think this year was absolutely financial disaster for the museums. Not just the building museum, but the opening museum as well. In the beginning of the year in Hungary, the museums were closed. And uh, when we opened the museum, we see the people, the visitors came back just slowly, absolutely slowly to the museum. The people were more open to the opening museums. I thought of the visitors in a different museum and the opening museum was absolutely on the top. 
But I think there was a fear among the people to visit cultural institutions, museums. And I don't know, really, I don't know what will happen on the next year. How will the financial situation on the next year, how many people lost the job, how will be the family budget on the next year, possible to visit the museum, how change the thinking about the museum. For example, in this year, we lost more than 70% of the school groups in my museum. We hope on the next year, the schools will be open again for the museum's visit. But I think we need more and more work to invite the people again to the museum. At the moment, for me, the future is not so nice, but I think we have a possibility to build again our audience group. It does indeed seem there's a couple of people working in museums or open-air museums who are worried about the future, as of course are a lot of people in heritage work. We will move on to a slightly more positive <laughs> question, but uh, I think this is an important point. From Roland, we have another question. Is there a clear difference between real and fake buildings in a museum context? Does the public respond differently? Do people question at all what they see, what is presented to them? Perhaps, Luke, you have a lot of experience with building things. You can answer this. Yes. From my experience, the visiting public have become far more savvy over the last sort of 20 or so years. And it's really clear to see. I, I've done various work at historic festivals over the last five years. And the sort of reenactment groups that sometimes turn up and they bring, and I have to say, I'm not knocking this. This is not me having a go at reenactment, but groups that turn up and through necessity, they bring plywood buildings, which can be sort of screwed together in an evening before the show starts. And it's interesting, 20 years ago, I think the public were content with that. I think they would sort of understand that that's kind of what a Roman villa would have looked like or a Roman bathhouse or whatever. But I think because open air museums themselves have become much, much better in the last 30 years and have really sort of pursued authenticity to the nth degree in some cases, then I think the public have sort of become far more picky in terms of what they are prepared to look at and they question far more in my experience than they ever have done before. And I think that's a good thing. My mission statement really is to try and do things as authentically as possible. But, you know, we live in the real world and one of the biggest issues I have is health and safety in terms of accessing great heights and lifting heavy timbers. So although some projects I've done have been entirely authentic, it's very difficult depending on the client I'm working for. You know, if it's a large heritage organization, they are not prepared to lift a half ton piece of timber into place by hand. Or if they are, then it needs to be on scaffold systems that are modern and are testable to be safe. So the difference between real and fake is a fuzzy line, I suppose. You can have an authentic building, but actually you've cheated to get it to that stage by using modern access methods. And sometimes you've increased the speed of the build using some steel tools as opposed to always flint, for example, or bronze, because you're working with volunteers and you're trying to keep a momentum behind the project. I think there is a difference between authentic buildings and fake buildings. And I think when the public walk into a real building and they encounter somebody who has built it and can tell them the stories of that construction and the issues that surrounded that construction and the debates that went on about how to interpret that piece of evidence, I think the visiting public gets a much deeper, meaningful experience of that building than when they're strolling around a plywood constructed or a fake building, because it is more real. It is as simple as that. Thank you. 
Jolt, you mentioned already the fact that people recognize certain buildings as being in the same style as their grandparents' house or something like that. Do you find it almost goes too much the other way? People start saying, oh, but we didn't have something like this. Or I would like to say something from the museum aspect, from the curatorial aspect. The autumn city is our identity. And I don't want to change this point. We are not a scenery. The autumn city is our background. And I think if we change something in this stage, it was the start the end of the museum. So I don't believe this type. And the visitors need to know what is real and what is a fake. And I think we can show what is the difference between the movies and the part of the history, the real part of the history. Of course, I know what does it mean when we museologize the history. Of course, it is formal. But we need to see what is the difference between the museum and the scenery. Roland actually made a point about that as well, talking about the influence of like Netflix, games and all of these things where people have an idea of what the past should look like. And that might differ as well from what it actually was like. It's interesting. Can I butt in? So for many years, again, I taught children of all ages. And one of the things we did on a daily basis was blacksmith and make real items with seven-year-olds and upwards. And they would pump the bellows and they would hammer the hot metal and they would shape it and make penannular brooches and Roman nails and a whole host of things. But what was really interesting was with the advent of Minecraft, the game, children would walk into the forge and they would look around the forge. And of course, you know, the forge fire is burning at 1200 degrees and the sound of the bellows are pumping and there's a hammer ringing on the anvil. And they would look at all the stuff and say, oh, I know this. I've done this on Minecraft and you put the metal in the forge and you shape it. And many, many times I said, you're absolutely right. That is basically the process. Now come over here, hold this hammer and have a go. And always at the end of an actual session of practically blacksmithing, I would say to them, so is it like Minecraft? And they would always look up at me and say, no, it's nothing like Minecraft. So although a game and a film can show you the principles behind things, and again, this goes back to my rant about technology, you can see how things are done. But until you've actually tried it yourself, you only then begin to understand the subtlety, the complexity, the smell, the taste, all of those things that you can't get by playing a game or watching a film. And that is why we do what we do, I think. That's why open-air museums are so important, because, again, I know I'm repeating myself, but it gives you a real-world experience. And in some way, which is probably difficult to fathom, but in some way puts you in touch, again, with people in the past that had a similar experience. Do you have anything to add to that, Charles? I think we, in the Open Museum, we need to give the possibility for the visitors include our presentation. So the, the visitor need to participate in the actions in the museum. And, uh, and that is why we are really friendly and we have uh, many visitors because they involve the exhibitions and they meet with the real history. And uh, this background is absolutely important for the museum. We have a very good question here from Kate. I am particularly interested in how museums can make positive changes in today's society. How do you think museums can help the community and visitors move from looking critically at the past to thinking about those same themes in the present and the future? Perhaps, Jolt, you could start, because I know you've done a lot of work with this. Uh, yeah, I think in my museum, we focus to the 19th and the 20th century. And uh, the last hundred years, we have a lots of absolutely negative historical background. 
And the former exhibitions in the museum focused to the nice view of the peasant life. And the last few years, we changed some exhibition and we focused what was the black part of this history. And we involved the visitors and the communities to speak about nowadays problematic what is the gender question nowadays? What is the ecological thinking? What is the nature close life? And the peasant society, the peasant history is a really good example for the visitors. And we can manage this question in a different way in the museum, not just in the exhibitions, not just in the publications, but in the educational program also. For example, we have a really interesting program for old people who live with dementia. And that was absolutely fantastic when the museum program gives for these people a good experience and help for a good moments in their life. And I think that is our mission, to give a good example for the nowadays life. The eaten, seasonal, natural materials use the historical experience for the nowadays conflict in the society. So I think our ethnographical opener museum has a lot of possibility to give an answer and give a questions also for the Nordic society. I remember, Joel, that you mentioned another initiative that you were doing in terms of homeless people. Maybe you could just describe that because that's also very relevant to the point you're making now. It was really interesting because when we started to speak about what about the homeless people in the museum, in the museum, which museum present the homes? the houses and uh, it was fantastic when we meet the homeless people in the museum and after the visit of the museum some homeless people come to the museum for volunteer works and that was the first step for them to involve again in the society and after they spoke about how help the this volunteer work to give again back to the working society and after they found a job and it was a good step for them for a real life again. Yeah, that's I think that's really an amazing initiative. Luke, do you have anything to add there? Yeah, I agree entirely with what's been said so far, but it's reminded me of lots of things that we've sort of done in the past on projects. But one of the most successful things that we did, which was really sort of putting back into the community, I suppose, was working with children who were not engaged at school, at normal sort of school. And these students were sent to what are called learning centres, and they were not succeeding at all in a traditional school setting. So if you sat them at a desk and expected them to do a 45-minute lesson, it would be a complete failure. And I developed a sort of connection with our local learning centres in Dorset, and we started running projects with these students in mind, where they would come to us for one day a week or two days a week, sometimes three days a week, and we would sort of develop them as human beings. But the focus was a project. It might be building a Roman forge or another structure. But actually, that was just an excuse to get them on site in the open air, working hard and working with 
people that were positive role models who were reasonably fit and reasonably healthy and who thought a lot about the world and who had interesting conversations. And we had some incredible success stories. And again, I think this is a real lesson and an advantage for things like open air museums. One student I can think, I won't mention him, but one student, when he came to us at 15, he was obese and his file told us that he had no attention span and could not focus on anything for more than four minutes or something insane. And this student stayed with us for three years and he ended up coming three or four days a week and he became an integral member of the team. He was a volunteer and he found an absolute love of carpentry and of timber and of being outside and of working hard. He lost a huge amount of weight. In fact, his mum phoned me one day and said, I'm really worried about him. He's losing weight and he's looking different to the way he's always looked. And he was becoming muscular and he was proud of how he looked and how he felt and how hard he could work. And he went on from us and he went on and did college courses, which was never expected of him. And it was that's just one example of, of really positive stories that we've had in terms of doing real things with people. Because, again, we forget that in our society tries to cover all bases, doesn't it? It tries to go with, with a sort of a model that fits all. But of course, what that does is it fits quite a few people really badly. And education is the same. We know, and the literature is there that shows that people learn in very different ways. We still expect everyone to learn in a way that involves a school and a classroom and a teacher. And I think the kind of projects that we run are a really good example of expanding that educational resource, that educational experience it's into very different areas. And it can really open people's eyes and develop them as people and set them on a far healthier track in terms of mind and body. I've seen it work really well for many years, and I think that's a potential way forward. Thank you. Yeah, another really yeah, interesting example. It's not just presenting certain parts of the past and using that to think critically about things, but also using issues of the present and the future in museums. I'm afraid we're out of time. Thank you very much, Jolt and Luke, for joining us today and sharing your experience, expertise. We've definitely learned a lot and uh, covered a lot of different bases. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. And uh, yes, thank you to everyone else for listening to this episode of Finally Friday by Exarch. If you would like to become more involved with Exarch, why not become a member? Alternatively, you can make a small PayPal donation through the website to help support Exarch in its future endeavours, because as we've heard today, it's going to be tough for, you know, open-air museums and archaeologists. But anyway, enjoy the weekend, everyone, and see you next month for another episode of Finally Friday.